millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ally, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ally, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. And now, on to my interview with Mary Wood. Learning about the business around you, but don't let, but don't let the, I would say don't let the business side of it lead you. I think let your heart lead you because when your heart leads you, that's where you're going to be really successful. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they moves, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Silent Giants Podcast. A podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars and in creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. This week's Silent Giant is music entrepreneur, singer, songwriter, and producer, Mary Wood. Mary is the founder of Frisbee a company that specializes in writing for television commercials, sound design, movie scoring, and brand consulting. Mary has written, performed, and produced for some of the most recognizable brands, like Pepsi, 7-Up, and many others. Her work as a musical TV giant led her to write songs for A-list artists like Aretha Franklin, Britney Spears, Jordan Sparks, Isaac Hayes, Kiss, Faith Hill, Jessica Simpson, The Spice Girls, and countless others. In this interview, I stopped by her Tribeca studio to chat about her upbringing in New Hampshire, how she got into music, moving to NYC, getting into commercial advertising, writing the Joy of Pepsi jingle, being in the studio with Aretha Franklin, founding her own company, and a whole lot more. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the entrepreneur, producer, singer, songwriter, my friend, the silent giant, Mary Wood. Yo, yo, what up? What up? I'm hanging out with Mary Wood right now. What's up, Mary? <laughs> What's up? How are you? I'm good. Just chilling. Just chilling? Just chilling right now. I- I'm enjoying the atmosphere right now. It feels like an episode of Friends. Exactly. Yeah. This is my <laughs> home space. <laughs> yep. I walked in like, wow, I didn't even know these places even exist. And it's real. It's real. Exactly. Like I said, th- this was exactly how I felt when I first saw the space. I was like, wow, this is what I thought New York would be like right when I got here. And it was not like this. But How long have you been in the space? Uh, now I've been here for 12 years. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's the, it's the crib right I'm here. Knocking, I'm knocking wood on the, on the 12-year crib. Hey, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, look, consistency in New York is really, really hard. It is. And you're the model of consistency. Yep. Although it's sort of, it's a consistent inconsistent. You know what I mean? I always say, I feel like we're reinvent, every couple of years, there's a reinvention that happens to, to stay consistently successful. So there we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, every, every great artist or business have to pivot. Exactly. You know what I mean? Apple was making computers. Yep. Now they're making watches. Look at them now. Who now, they're, th- now they're making robots. Now they're who making knows? robots. You know what I mean? Like who would have thought? <laughs> Apple's turning into Samsung now. Exactly. <laughs> I know. So, so how long have you been here in New York? So I've been in New York for 20 years. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yo, you're a New Yorker for oh, real. Oh, yeah. I know. When I said I'm from New Hampshire, I thought, you know, I really feel more like a New Yorker. I feel like I'm from Brooklyn at this point. But I, I was born and raised in New Hampshire. Wait, so what, what, what year did you move here to New York? So I moved to New York in the 90s. And um, I guess it was like 92. 
and I've been here since. What was it like so, then? Um, it was dirty. <laughs> <laughs> it was crowded. I mean, coming from where I came from, it felt very intense, but exciting at the same time. Because I, I, you know, I really was inspired by career ideas and goals. And so it was sort of a complex situation for me. But I realized pretty quickly, like, I can stay here and I can be successful, but I'm going to have to be able to leave every couple weeks and get out and go to the country. Yeah, yeah. I call it thawing out. Yeah, exactly. Thawing <laughs> out. Yeah, I needed to do that. I definitely needed to do that. And wait, so you are originally from New Hampshire? Yes. Yo, very, very pleasant place. Very pleasant. I grew up uh, in a college town where Dartmouth College is. Very, oh, get out. Very small, beautiful, insulated community, which in hindsight was great. I was pretty ready to flee from there when I was about 16. I was like, all right, I'm done with this. I got this. I need to go explore more. Did your but, parents work for the university? Yeah, my dad was a medieval history professor and was head of the history department. Deep. Yeah, deep. <laughs> super deep. Yeah, no the medieval kidding. Medieval history. Like, yeah, no, damn. no, yes. Not <laughs> fucking around. <laughs> I, I so, what's your mom? So my mom was a learning specialist at a school right outside of Hanover um, and then was also, you know, pretty much uh, our mom. You know, didn't work for a long time. And then when I was, I guess when I got into middle school, she became a learning specialist. But she had, you know, she went to college and majored in philosophy and literature and was, you know, had career goals. But I think ultimately decided, you know, I have three siblings, so there were four of us. So her main job, I think, was taking care of us. Where'd you rank in the sibling? Youngest. You're the youngest. Yes. Oh, you had it so good. I did. For real. Not. I'm not going to lie. I had it so good. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, the youngest, they get away with more. The parents are just so chill. Like, oh, they're, God. They're yes. like, yo, look, we've been through this like three times already. I'm the poster child. Like one of my sisters is like eight years older than me. So, you know, she was like at Harvard by the time I was in fifth grade. So I was like, yo, you're fine <laughs> with her. Like whatever I do, it's going to be cool. Don't worry. Like living in like such a, a academic setting, was there any pressure to on you to be super academic? Yeah, there definitely was. And I think I just... I don't know how would I describe that it, it was there was a ton of pressure to achieve and I think I just always looked at it like I had to carve out my own way of doing it so like if everyone was you know swimming and doing great in school I was like I'm just gonna go do music like I kind of needed my own path so yeah uh, I, did, I just sought it out how did that path happen for you where you were going to get into music that happened totally organically like I always loved singing like I just would sing myself to sleep every night like I was making up songs all the time like I just loved music and I think my parents were a little perplexed by it they were like oh you just want to be different like that's why you're and I was like no this is this is what I need to do to live and breathe like I just always felt like I needed to do music and then you know so I did the usual stuff like chorus and got as involved as I could in music and school and then in high school a good friend of mine was like a really good keyboard player and he's like we got to just start a band and that's when it all <laughs> that's when the cracks in the veneer started <laughs> and we started a rock band and it was it, i was lost to music after that wait what'd that you, what it. instrument did you play were you the so lead singer i was just the lead singer oh you yeah. would just fly <laughs> i was just yeah forget it yeah you know, sometimes the I would help carry nah. the instruments. Yeah, exactly. No, I just was the singer, singer in the band. And so, yeah. what was the name of the band? It was called Zorn, <laughs> which you was say it with so much pride. Yeah, Zorn was the. Uh, it came from this book called Watership Down, and it uh, there was it basically in the book it had its own vocabulary, and Zorn meant destruction. So that was the name of our band. Wow. Yeah. What, what kind of music was it? It was actually pretty eclectic. There was a lot of pop music, but like the drummer was really into like Led Zeppelin and I was into other like more like pop R&B. So it was, it was a very eclectic mix of cover songs. And then we like wrote a few originals, but it was very mixed. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. so like you're in school now and your parents are like, ex like accepting of this. They're like, you know, 
Mary's, we, we've been this before. Mary's good, you know? Yeah, I think they were pretty accepting. You know, I was making money. Like, we would play a lot of frat parties at Dartmouth and make money, like, doing the shows. I, I think they got a certain kick out of it. And I was still doing certain, you know, sports like tennis and skating. And I was still, like, ach- achieving in ways that were probably a slightly more comfortable for them. So <laughs> they were like, okay, this is just a sideline that's that's cool for now. Did you have more of, like, the like lead singer part? role of the band or was there more administrative back-end managing business stuff none of that at, at that time okay. yeah no there was none of that really the keyboard player was the guy that went out and like got us the gigs and had the big plan to just like rule <laughs> and, and he's like you're the singer and you just do this thing so that yeah the business part of it was was really pretty far far away from my reach at that point i just wasn't thinking like that i definitely liked making money but i wasn't setting out to do it so at the, that the, point there's like a uh i don't know people have like their practical goals yeah that they have when they're kids of like and like yeah. the music's like the lofty goal yeah or like being in the nba yeah yeah um yeah. what was your like practical like job that you wanted as a kid yeah actually that's kind of hilarious i don't think i had a practical goal I think I really was just like, well, I love singing so much and I love music so much. I just want to be like a rock star. Like I just want to do music. And, you know, in that experience in being in a band in high school, like I made decent money. So I was like, hey, I'm kind of like this. This could work for me. That's what I was thinking, you know. But then I got to New York and was like, no, it doesn't work like that. Like in New York, you come here and you basically pay to play. Oh, yeah. Because you're paying for rehearsals. You're paying for spaces. You're paying for. I was like, oh, wow. I had it really good. Yeah. I was like making money in Virginia. Yeah. Right. Like off your craft. And here it's just very different. No, it's like, no, you pay us. So that was that was pretty eye opening. Where did where did New York come from? Where did the idea come from to move here? I thought it was a safe bet. I I uh, went to college at Sarah Lawrence. Oh, how was that? Yeah, I loved it. Like, I basically... All girl school, right? Yeah, it's... it's. I think there's about 20% Dudes? male. Yeah. It, oh, it, dude, it, I want to go. It, yeah, no, exactly. It's like, if you go to Sarah Lawrence now, doing? it's like, either you're gay or you're a total, like, mackin'. Or winning. Yeah, or, or just winning. winning. Or just winning. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. But it, it's really artsy, and it's... Um, for someone like me that was... <clears throat> pretty self-directed in a in a specific way it was nice because they let you kind of create your own curriculum to achieve the goals that you want and so for me it was it was great because I wanted to do pop music and or contemporary music and I wanted to be a performer and I wanted to know a certain amount about business but I also wanted to because my dad was a medieval historian, I had a I had a real sense of responsibility to get a liberal arts education, which I could do there. So I like had a focus in philosophy and in music, which was just great. So I loved it. I didn't wow. want to leave. I loved it. Wow. Wait, yeah. where is Sarah Lawrence? It's in Bronxville, New York. So it's basically the Bronx. Like it's sort of hilarious. It's like on the border of Yonkers and the Bronx, but their mailbox is in Bronxville, which is a very fancy address. Yeah, they were like, we just, right. we yeah. can't have the Bronx. No. Let's just throw a bill behind no, it. No, we can add like a few more zeros to the tuition. Bronxburg. Yeah. <laughs> add a few more zeros on there. So it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, I, I'm very lucky that I got to go there. My dad, I really didn't want to go to college. I just wanted to go pursue my band. Yeah. And then he's like, you have to go to college. I don't care what you learn. You just need to learn how to learn. So then I was like, okay, I want to go to Sarah Lawrence. And he was like, I don't think you have the clothes for that school. Like, that's like <laughs> a crazy fancy school. But God bless my dad. He helped me go there. And so that was because um, the, Sarah, the reason why you went to Sarah Lawrence was because you wanted to have proximity to New York City? Yeah, exactly. Like, okay. I thought about NYU. And then I just thought, you know what? I was a pretty wild child. And I just really thought I might not ever go to class if I, coming from New Hampshire, moved to Manhattan. I just knew myself well enough to know that it might not go well. <laughs> were, were you still in the band while you were, um, were you still in the band while you were in college? No, we all went to college and we kind of broke up the band. And then I was in other bands in college, like here and there, but did a lot of just like solo performances or like, you know, throw together coffee house things and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. And so yeah. you're done with school. Yeah. And then you're like, yo, all right, dad, like it's my uh, time. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm moving to New York City. Yeah. Where'd you move to? So I moved to first apartment was, <laughs> oh, the scenic view of the Midtown Tunnel. Oh, it was awful. Fifth floor walk up of, you know, at like 33rd <laughs> and 3rd Avenue. It was so loud. Tar roof, fifth floor. It was so hot. I was so broke. It was just, it was awful. <laughs> and so when you get into New York. Yeah. And you're hitting the pavement. You're like working on your career. Like, what was your focus? What yeah. was your goal at that time? Yeah, I really wanted to be, you know what? I, it's funny because when I think back, it's like it was just not a focus goal other than to be like a famous, like, I just wanted to be a, a rock star. I was just like, okay, I'm writing my songs. I've got my little setup at home. And I was just like writing and really wanted, I, I basically, my goal was to get a record deal, I guess you would say. That, that was really the goal. But I also needed to make money. So when I was pounding the pavement, the, the two things were not congruous. Like, I didn't think I would get a record. I was realistic. I didn't think I'd get a record deal right away. So my first job was actually through a friend of mine from Sarah Lawrence, who was a writer. And she had been offered this job working for a literary agent that she turned down. But she's like, oh, you should talk to my friend Mary. So I ended up working for a literary agent, just like screening novels for her and being her assistant. Wow. Yeah. It was a very odd situation. Yeah, you're making the rent. Yeah, I was making the rent. But she also, I guess there was a little bit of a, you know, some sort of preemptive vision of she was, she was, uh, the literary agent was renting her office from an ad agency. So I got a real sense of what advertising was while I was working for her. Um, but then I kind of got tired of that job and I was like, well, I don't really have enough time to write songs. I really just feel like I should be writing songs. Like that's just like drinking water for me. I need to be doing music. So I quit and I just got a job as a waitress and I just worked as a waitress and worked my way up to getting really good shifts so I could just work like three nights a week and make good cash and then just be home all the time making music. Wait, so how long were you uh, being a waitress for? That was like two years. Okay. Yeah. And so at this point you're like, it's like 90... 97 or something? Yeah. So then I was like, now I'm really, the pendulum swings, and I'm like, I'm a college graduate. Like, now I'm really sick of waitressing. Like, I'm going to go get another day job. So then I got a job working in a recording studio that, I guess advertising was just following me because this recording studio where I got a job happened to be, I, I didn't even research it, honestly. I was just like, oh, recording studio, great. I'll take this job. And then it turned out they really didn't do music there. They just did like voiceovers and post-production okay. for ads. Okay. So I did that job for a while. It's like the universe is key speaking to you. Exactly. And then a music producer from an ad agency that was working there met me and he offered me a job in a music department at an ad agency. So I sort of like went. What was that job? I was, I was a secretary for him answering phones basically listen you know screening some music and answering phones but it it was just basically being an assistant you know as far as the day-to-day responsibility filing some contracts and things like that but like big picture i was just absorbing like oh there's this whole world of music for commercials like i didn't really ever think about that yeah for me even though i always loved commercials when i heard them on tv and i have a very short attention span so i think i retain stuff like that really well and like but it, it was a really good eye opener to like oh okay this is this is a whole field of music that i never really considered yeah yeah because yeah. at, at the time your mind was still wrapped around the concept of you being a like a rock star touring yeah, yeah exactly what was your musical style like it was more your solo stuff it was uh i would say it was like super melodic pop but with definitely a little bit of like an r&b influence but i i i was really doing everything myself so i wouldn't say it was great (laughs) but that was kind of where i was at like i would program my own beats and do my thing but it was definitely like an r&b pop kind of kind of vibe okay yeah and so what was like your turning point or light bulb moment in your career where you were like oh this is the direction i'm gonna go Oh yeah. So so after I had that job as a as a secretary, I got a another job at an ad agency called Sachi and Sachi and I I sort of like talked my way into being a music producer there just based on 
you know, production work I had done. And I just remember being in a meeting where they were talking about the next campaign for this like hair care product. And I was like, well, why don't we do, I I, kind of think like this kind of music would be great or maybe we do something like this. And everybody was listening to me and they actually did what I suggested. And the next thing I knew, two days later, I was in the studio producing a track like the suggestion that I had made. So that was like a huge thing. I was like, wow, I actually, that, that just felt like very much enabled me to, to feel some confidence in, in, in my vision and in, in my sense of music and, and in branding, frankly. And then after that, like not long after that, another campaign came along for Cheerios where they were looking for a song and everybody was super stumped at the agency. And finally I was like, well, I just wrote some lyrics and wrote a song and I was like, how about this? And everyone was like, oh, oh, yeah, this is great. Like, let's do this. So they ended up using my song and my words for this Cheerios campaign. They put the lyrics on the box and I was like, wow. Wow, get out. Get out, yeah, wait, exactly. Wait, wait, I was wait. like, get out. Wait, hold on. So at this point, you mentioned you were a singer. How did you get into producing music? Like well, how did that even happen? Yeah, so I mean, I just always had like, just to date myself, like I always had like a four track, I had a drum machine I'd, and a keyboard and I was just doing it like a fish to water. Like I was just always making stuff to try to showcase my own songs. So then when this Cheerios thing came up, I was like, ah, I'll just like make this little demo. And you know, truth be told, like once the demo was done, then we did go into a studio and we blew it out and we made it like, a bigger production, but I really just learned by doing because I really needed to show myself and show when I wanted to show my own songs. I was really just teaching myself as I went. Wow. Yeah. So wait, so what, what what's that process like of like you're you're a music person, right? Yeah. And you create uh, essentially the tagline or or yeah, I don't know the ex- exact marketing term. I guess tagline. Yeah, for a totally. Product. Yeah, or a jingle or a yeah. jingle. Yeah. So, when it gets placed on the box, like how does that business wise work? Yeah. Okay. Great question because that leads to the next. So it was so funny because I was like, wow, I'm so glad they like this and it's so cool. And then it goes on the box like, hey, did you know Cheerios? Blah 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 blah. I was like, holy shit. And then the guy that was my boss at the time was like it's not okay that you did that. And I was like, it's not okay that I did that. Like the Cheerios is using, and I didn't get paid anything extra because I had signed something when I started. I think it's pretty standard that when you work at an agency, like anything you do, they own. It's like, a, it's a, just a global work for hire thing, which I was fine with like, hey, I was making money. I was paying my rent. Like I, I was not looking for more money, but then I got sort of the, wrist slap of like, don't do that because it's a conflict of interest. Like you're supposed to be hiring other people to do this. So like if you're doing that, it's not cool. Like, yeah. you, so that's when I left. <laughs> Over the last couple of days, I've been doing a lot of research and interviewing people. Because Silent Giants and now like, oh, I think it's outside of the box beyond just like, you know, music. I'm like what's number one on Billboard? Yeah. And I was thinking about like, who writes these taglines? Like who writes yeah. just do it? Right, exactly. Who, who wrote Skittles Taste the Rainbow? Yeah, exactly. Like, these things are so recognizable. And then yeah. I, I was, uh, a friend of mine called me up the other night and was like, yo, meet me at this bar. I'm working. Like, you could get some drinks. Sorry, right, cool, man. So I roll out the crib and I meet this guy who works in advertising. Mm. And we have this whole conversation that's like, yeah, well, I, I come up with this topic, this copy, but I don't get any credit for it at all. No, exactly. And I don't like that. Yeah. Did you, did you feel conflicted with that as well? Well, you know, as far as the getting credit, I actually didn't really, I honestly didn't care. I, I, I think like the self, the, the, the affirmation was enough for me. Yeah. Like it just gave me, because I think coming from where I came from, where I came from such an academic family and there was this, there was always sort of this lingering doubt that I was able or that I had the ability or that I had what it took. So it was pretty cool just to get that. And it was just, I just looked at it as a springboard, you know, cause I also, I think at the time looking now looking at it, I think I also didn't understand how much money I could or should have been making from yeah. coming up with that. Yeah. But again, I, I look at it as like, well, that was my, that was the point. That was the springboard that got me to my next place and gave me the confidence to say, okay, I can do this. And now I can do this independently and make the kind of money I'm supposed to make. What was, so, what was that, that next move for you? 
So the next move for me was I went to a company called Crushing Music. Okay. And um, that basically happened by me. I asked another music friend. I was like, what would you do if you're... He was an older guy who had a music company. And I was like... And I had hired him. And I was like, I don't know. I'm at this crossroads. And he was like, God, he lived in LA. And he was like, if you came to me asking for a job, I would hire you. Maybe you should go to the company that you think you'd be best suited for and ask them for a job. So that's what I did. I went to this company called Crushing. And it was owned by this guy named Joey Levine, who was like the king of literally the king of bubblegum music. Like he wrote all these bubblegum hits, yummy, yummy. I've got love in my tummy, all these Archie's hits. He wrote, sometimes you feel like a nut. Sometimes you don't like all these huge hits. So I was like, Hey, I know I'm a pop writer. So I went to him and I said, I'd really love to work for you. If you could ever figure out a way that I could have a job here. And like a month later, he called me up and he's like, okay, you can work for me. Here's, here's what I want you to do for me. And if you're down, let's do it. And wow. Then, yeah, and I made the jump. So basically, he had kind of said, find me new talent. You know, daily responsibilities were like, find new talent, which I love doing. You know, maybe a little sales, which I hate doing. Um, and then I had said to him, like, hey, I'd love to chime in and write stuff when when I think I'm right for it. And he was like, you can absolutely do that. Just do that on your own time. Like, after 6 o'clock, take it home, write stuff. So it was really fun. It was definitely, I think, very much in keeping with the ad world then and probably now. It's like very male. I was, I was going to touch on that because you're, I, you're I, a lady I was, boss. I, I was the only woman yeah. there except for the sales rep and the receptionist. And I was the only one that was kind of like ultimately that became a creative force there that was actually like earning. Yeah, I mean, even on Silent Giants, I have this conflict of like, yeah, it's just a really dude-dominated space. Yeah, it's way too dude. It's way too dude. But weirdly, I'm super comfortable and way too dude. Like, I I've always been a tomboy, and I think doing sports so much. Like, I've always just been really comfortable in what feels like a health a healthy competitive environment, and also like in the sense that like you're supportive of everybody, and and it is weird where. When you're writing for hire, there is this element of competition, but you're supporting each other and contributing. And so I think being a team player, like I, I, I was I think I was just writing something recently about my experience at crushing and I was like, and I was the only female writer. And I was like, I never really thought of it like that, but I was. And for you know, fifteen no, twelve no, not fifteen, it's like twelve years, I was the only female writer but you would imagine though it's kind of weird in the sense that a woman's perspective is super important exactly right like if i'm doing an ad for dove i feel like well, i would want a woman to write the ad no for exactly dove. so i i got lucky with certain things where they're like oh we would like the female perspective like that's really helpful but i think to a degree there's just like this level of just like well we don't care like we know it's marketable and I, I think there's a certain amount of just people being very presumptuous about what women want and what they think and they don't really it was pretty rare that like i don't even think i won very many things that were female oriented so, products weird kind of funny yeah i feel like i would like monopolize that like if i had like a black guy on the team i'd yeah. be like yo fam mickey d's <laughs> but like i was always i was always raised like don't let being a woman hold you back. Like, don't let being a girl, like you, like my dad always said, like, we kind of raised you like without gender. Like, that's what he always said. And mm. I think I kind of brought that to my world at crushing. Like, it was just kind of like, I'm just here to play the team. And like, oh, you want me to put my girl hat on? Okay. But it's literally putting the girl hat on. Cause I think I kind of can roll just with a more universal view, which is probably why I did well with bigger things. Like, a soda or a snack food, just like feeling good and, you know, and less specific as far as like what a woman would want. Or- well, I think also too, maybe operating in a space of like being a woman in a male dominated space or being yeah. like a black man in a white dominated space. Yeah. You just get used to being uncomfortable. You think that's a part of it too? It's like be- being uncomfortable is the norm. So it's not uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, and honestly, it's so, <laughs> sounds so funny, but like, I'm such a tomboy that like, like, the very first time I met Joey Levine, he said to me, he looked at my nails and he said, 
oh, you don't get manicures? And I burst out laughing because like where I grew up, like wearing makeup and getting manicures wasn't even a thing. And it was actually looked at as a sign of weakness. Like mm. that was like a weakness. Like we like, sure, like there's cheerleaders and they're really pretty. But like I was the sporty girl. Like I was not getting manicures and getting my hair done or like diamond, like none of that. So I was kind of like no like yeah yeah why aren't you getting a manicure yeah, yeah. man like i just never it just kind of rolled off me in this in hindsight in sort of a, a a great way i just never really thought about it like that and then i think the guys that i surrounded myself with as far as co-writers and engineers were probably equally sort of i don't i wouldn't say they were effeminate but also just like way more evolved in this way where it was like yeah everybody's equal here and it felt really good cool yeah so i don't know i was talking with a friend the other day i don't harp too yeah. much on, on topic of race yeah um i do but i see that it plays a factor yeah but i think largely people get along with people that they see themselves in or they have something in common with yeah yeah but i don't know if i think color plays a role in it because of the cultural totally. aspect yes but i think if a person if mary you like sports and i like sports well mary we're going to be friends because you like right. sports yeah exactly like it's my job to just prove people wrong. Like when I walk in the room and they underestimate me, my job is to rise above that and mm. show them otherwise. So mm -hmm. I would, there, there were times where I feel like I maybe internalized some of that. Like when I would walk in the room to a big meeting and I was there to present my song and someone would ask me for a cup of coffee because I was the only girl in the mm. room. So it's like, well, obviously you're the receptionist getting the coffee. And I would be like, well, I don't want any coffee. Well, sure, I'll get you a coffee and I'll get myself a coffee if you want a coffee. Like, I would be very accommodating, but sort of make it known that, like, I wasn't there to get them coffee. But sure, if, yeah, I'll get, sure, I'll get myself sure, a mind, coffee. But like, and I'll get you a coffee, but too. But then I also kind of loved, like, there was also just, like, that sweet spot where you kind of go, now it's time to present and you're going to buy my fucking song. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I just got you a yeah, cup of I, coffee. I want to make you eat shit. Like, so it's funny. Like, I sort of, I, I liked that. And I think I learned a little of that from him where it was just like, yeah, you know, there's going to be people that judge you in that way. And in a way that maybe I was blissfully ignorant of that I was like, yeah, you know what? There's a way to handle that. Mm. That can be well, good. That can be good. Powerful right. and positive. Right. It's not a chip on your shoulder. It's not like, oh God, that guy asked me to get him a cup of coffee. Now he's going to hate my song. Or now I have to do that. And like, oh, what? A, there was no conflict there. It was just sort of like, all right, yeah, I can do that. And I'm going to fucking blow your mind with this song right now. It also goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the service role. Right. Like yes. we're, we're always yes. still servicing. Yes. And you know there's I mean? that. We're here to do a job. We're here to do a job. So if that, that cup of coffee is going to get me to the next, the next point, Cool, man. Yeah, exactly. It's just a cup of coffee. Like, that's not a big deal. That's cool. I'm cool with that. Yeah. So how did you make the move out of crushing? Because you were obviously, like, well-loved and well-received, and people were, like, vibing with your stuff. And also, props to your boss, because he gave you a lot of freedom. He did. Props to my boss. Props to him. I loved him. I love him still. Um, yeah, so basically, the, the short story there was he, he, he made me a partner, which was, like, a huge... Huge oh, damn. Honor. He showed you lots of love. He showed me so much love. He and he, we schemed together. We made, you know, we had so many good business plans together. And basically, what happened was the business landscape changed a lot. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
And um, what, what what changed about the landscape of the business? Well, mainly that you know I think with with music becoming digital and and licensing becoming a way bigger part of music for advertising, like people when when we were first start when when I was first starting doing commercials, artists were not into selling their music to commercials. Like it just wasn't a thing. It was like that's selling your soul to the devil. So. Then there was a, a big change, basically, I think, because with Napster and all these like streaming services where music became basically free online, everybody needed to find new sources of income. So everybody decided like, hey, it's OK to sell our music for commercials. So all these record companies and artists started closing up to the ad industry. And it was taking a huge cut out of like our mom and pop business. So my because oh, you didn't have to make the music yourself. Now no, it was like now you can just license it from all these cool indie bands and like Nick Drake and like there were just some really big ads that happened that were super successful licensing music. So the landscape was changing, and I think that Joey and I both saw that. But I think the you know the way that we saw to you know deal with that were pretty different and you know so we amicably my contract was basically up and I said you know I'm just going to start my own place I'm going to downsize like that place was a huge facility on Union Square with like 10 writing rooms and I was just like I really want to be able to be more flexible where we can work with bands that want to record their music for licensing I want to be able to represent bands I want to be able to do work for hire I just want to just be more lean and mean and 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 more more flexible. So I decided to start Frisbee and um, that's what I did. You know, there's one thing I wanted to go back and and ask you about because I was reading up on you, doing my research on Mary Wood. Okay. And you were pinning commercial jingles for like brands like Pepsi. Yeah. And like 7up. Was this during the the Frisbee aspect of your career or was it with Crush It? That was with Crush It. Now, when you're writing a... um, uh, a jingle. Yeah. Um, say, for instance, for Pepsi. Yeah. How does that even work? How does, I don't even know. Yeah. How, how, yeah, what's, yeah, the, yeah. what's the origin process yeah. of That's making so this funny, all come I was to just, life? I was just like kind of documenting that because I feel like it's like a, a, a like a piece of history that people should know about. Um, and by the way, the joy of Pepsi yeah. is humongous. Yeah. It's kind of big. It's lasted. Yeah. Joy the Pepsi. Joy the, joy the bubbles. Joy the fun. Mm-hmm. Joy the Pepsi. You on your tongue. Yeah, yeah. Massive. <laughs> So like, yeah. Ex- how how does that even happen? Yeah. Like- so so I, I guess like the um, so basically with that with that particular campaign, um, they came to us, and I love this about this. They they basically the the ad typically doing a jingle. The, the assignment's coming from the ad agency, not from the brand. Like it trickles down. The brand has certain markets they're trying to hit. The ad agency like synthesizes that with the brand and figures out like what they need to do um, as far as the marketing plan. So when it got to me, it was and my I, I wrote that with a guy named Clifford Lane, who was a big part of my writing while at Crushing. And they basically were like, hey, we've got the, they had the tag and the tag at the time was the joy of cola, not the joy of Pepsi. They were like, everybody's drinking bottled water. We want everybody to enjoy soda again. So they, I was like, all right, well, give me all the market research. Like, I want to know about this. I'm going to be writing the words. Like, show me. So they they gave me like this 25-page thing, market research about what people enjoy and what they want to do and why they don't like soda and why they do like soda and blah, blah, blah. And then, and, and then beyond that, it, w- it was really just like, a pretty fundamental understanding that this is a song that needs to reach not a niche market. Like this is a worldwide campaign, like write something catchy. Like that's, it was pretty open in that way. But I think at that time, like Clifford and I really understood that the creative directors at the ad agency were really, um, they liked kind of organic stuff, but it needed to be modern to appeal to, you know, they liked organic in the sense of the sixties, but they like modern because it needs to appeal to kids and, but it needed to appeal to people that are already drinking soda. So we 
kind of took a really non-genre specific approach to the music. But I think emotionally, you know, I really just thought about, it sounds so cheesy, but I really just thought about, because I actually like Pepsi and I'm actually just an occasional Pepsi drinker. So I was really just channeling like what it is, what do I like about drinking Pepsi? Like, what is it? And what are those times that I would drink a Pepsi? So it was really that song really came out of uh, um, channeling that emotion. And then, um, but that said, we did write like four demos for that. Like we didn't write just one, like we would always write like three or four. Yeah. So we wrote a bunch and that one just for some reason. Did you know that that one was special? totally knew it it was so <laughs> weird it was like like we had had some hits before but it's like i i just got chill like we were doing it and we kind of had the joy of the joy of the, it's like ah oh, that's it that's the chorus like that's great joy of fun joy of just, and then we're thinking about it, we're like nah but joy of cola that's not a tag like what is it like we gotta keep going and then we were just just kept going into the night. And then it was like, yeah, it just needs some non-lyrical. And it was just like, ba, 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 yes. And I, I will never forget that. It's like, the joy of cola. <laughs> we were like, I mean, I literally was like laughing oh, as we did it. It was so funny. <laughs> we were just like, holy fuck, this is so great. And we were literally just like recording it like into a little you know, tape recorder. It was just like, okay, this is so great. And then we got our friends in to like play I just remember we were all in this one big room. We got the drummer in to play that beat. And we just knew, like, it just had such a good energy about it. We had this hippie friend in that happened to be visiting from Vermont. And he was just sitting there, like, tapping his head as we did it. Like, it just felt so endorsed. And I, I think that verse lyric was a little different at the time. But we just knew that that chorus was so good. And it, it literally, like, we submitted it. And we had already done a Pepsi campaign that like the Spice Girls had done. Like we felt like we had an in, but like, no, come to find out they had called like a hundred people to write on this new thing. And we didn't hear anything for quite a while. And it, it literally was keeping me up at night. Cause I was like, you know, they say like that earworm, it was in my ear. And I was like, I know this fucking song is so good. Like, can I just call ahead of BBDO? Like, can I just overstep right now <laughs> and just tell them? Like, I really wanted to just, because I knew, I just knew, but I couldn't, it wasn't my place to say. And, you know, it just sounds self-serving. So, like, what am I doing? Hey, I'm the great. You just like, so I just let it lie. And then, like, next thing I knew, they were like, yeah, we're going to go with this. And we're going to go with basically the demo we did. That was the first version. Wow. Yeah. So it was crazy. And then what was it like seeing, you know, other famous people? Oh, God. Like, I, I like to write songs. Yeah. And for me, they mean something emotional, right? Yeah. Like, I remember where I was and who, mm -hmm. who the song was about. And then to see someone else, like, sing it and have yeah. it take one, like, new life. Yeah. It's like, whoa. But then when you have, like, famous people singing yeah. the lyrics that you wrote, like, oh, what God. does that feel like? Oh, it's insane. It's so... Who, I was so Who's the first elated. famous person? Who's the first so, famous person? So the, the first, uh, it was Aretha, and that experience was absolutely crazy. You ain't heard nothing yet. Hit it, fellas. like okay as you probably know she doesn't travel like or she she doesn't fly so it was like okay we're gonna fly to detroit we're gonna record aretha and i was like so you went oh yeah what oh yeah so i flew to detroit because they needed someone to produce the session right to represent the agency so it was like myself my friend ronnie Vaz, who's the music producer at bbdo and then a bunch of account people that work at bbdo and we go to this studio and we get there and they're like, everyone's all a flutter. They're like, okay, they have like the heaters on in the bathroom to make sure it's the right temperature. They've got like the Chinese food delivered. Like she's got her list of things, but this is the studio she said she needed to do it at. So I'm just like, so nervous. She walks in the room, uh, walks in the studio. She's like, I want some, I want my ribs and I want some fried rice. And they're like, okay. And she doesn't even acknowledge me. She goes into the room. 
She puts her headphones on. She's like practicing. And I'm noticing as she's practicing, she's actually singing an older lyric, like a lyric that was not the current lyric. And I'm like, okay, so she got the thing we sent, but she's like practicing it. And she's like, because I'm not sure how this goes. So she's kind of playing it like she didn't, she she didn't know what she was getting into, but actually knew she kind of did. But like she's doing the song, and I'm sitting at the at the um, the console. Or? Yeah, at the console with the engineer, and she's doing like the drums. It's like so amazing. It's <laughs> uh, so great. But like honestly, like there was one thing she kind of needed to do over. Like you know, she'd done one take. It was mind blowing. But like we're not going to be fixing a lot of stuff. So I was like. Can you? So I said, I think his name was Michael. I was like, Do you think you could just ask her to get that back section like one more time? He's like, I'm not telling her, you tell her. Oh, shit. So I'm like, finger shaking, going <laughs> on the talk back. And I was like, I'm sorry, Miss Franklin, do you think you could get that one more time just at that end? And she's like, Why? And I was like, You know, uh, you know how these ad people are. They just need options. And she's like, And I was like, but, you know, it was amazing. We just need, like, one more pass at that end so we get that really big end. And so then she just, like, blows it out of the park. And then she looks over at me and Ronnie, another woman. And she's like, ladies? So that's always <laughs> a running joke. Like, did I do? She's like, ladies? Because I think she realized, like, I'm here for you. And you're here for me. Like, I'm not here to, like, bust you. Like, I just want it to be great. So that, that and and when she oh, was doing man. the, like, Joy of living, joy of life. As she was practicing, she looks at me. She's like, "This is my favorite part." And I was like, "That I always keep with me." Like she had a favorite part of anything I ever did was just that was incredible. And so, incredible. what was that feeling like, like when that commercial came out and that that, that aired? Oh, it was so great. But honestly, like it, it's funny with like work for hire stuff because as much as I love that commercial, I just felt like wow. I wish I could have seen her more on camera. Like I wished like that commercial was cool and they did a cool thing. But it's funny how I, you know, that experience in the studio was so exciting. I, I, I almost wish they had captured more of that in the ad. But I, I know that that's just, you know, how, I, I have a business question to ask. Yeah. Like as a writer yeah. of the jingle. Yeah. Even though you're working under the umbrella company. Yeah. Do you get like royalties as the writer of the jingle, even though you're an employee of the yeah. umbrella company? Yeah. So the way it works usually with work for hire is you, so the brand will own the publishing mm -hmm. and they'll get those royalties. We keep the writer royalties as the writers. I'm not sure all companies work that way, but Clifford and I, who wrote the jingle, kept that. And then you get performance royalties. Like we were on the background vocals and we were musicians. So there's royalties that come you in, in the background for, vocals too for like ASCAP and BMI and then yeah just those background things you sing background with Aretha oh did I not mention <laughs> that I sing with Aretha Franklin <laughs> oh yo that's huge <laughs> no yeah she wasn't there when I did it but yeah yes. that's so yeah. dope yeah no great that's actually one of the things as a total aside to the jingle world that I was always really shitty at singing background vocals. I was always, that was like a, an Achilles heel for me. Like I just, I could do it a little bit doing my stuff at home, but like being at Crushing where there were so many great singers, it was all about group singing. And I learned so much about harmonies and vocals and like blending people and what that brings. That was, that was a really great aspect of working there. It was really fun. And about that era. I were you think. part of the 7UP campaign as well? I was, I, I was, it was interesting that I, I sang that and I wrote a lot of the lyrics for that. That was a really funny, I feel like that's sort of a classic, like happy accident situation where someone else named Billy Alessi who worked at Crushing had written that, written the, tr he'd made the track and it had a totally different top line on it. And he'd written it as like a demo for Jello or something. And this, the music producer he'd done it for called me up in a panic and he's like, we're doing a pitch for 7-Up and I feel like that Jello thing that Billy wrote could be really great if you could just like rework it and make it for 7-Up. Could you just like do that for me like right now? It was literally like two o'clock and I was like in the afternoon and he needed about like six. So I was like, okay. So we just like 
pulled it up and I just started like riffing on it and Billy was in there and we just kind of, and I was like, this is so low for me. Like I sound ridiculous singing so low, like this is not, and, but we just kind of made it work and it became this big hit. It's the way it makes you feel. It's the lift that you get. It's a rhythm in your step cause it's cool and it's wonderful and it's lemon and lime. It's an up thing. It's an up thing. Like that was like, that was really the first thing I ever did that I was like, oh my God, I remember calling my mom and being like, man, I feel like I hit the lottery. Like I sang it and I made royalties and people loved that vocal and it, it was so funny because it was just really it, That was during the like seven up, it, it's an up thing? It's an up thing. Seven up, seven up, yeah. it's an up it's thing. It's an up thing. Seven up, seven <laughs> does it every time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yo, I know all these jingles like that's I watched so a lot crazy. of TV as a kid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> No, yeah, so that's how I was, and I guess it just fed my career. It paid off. Cause did, so did you have to pin, like, the lyrics to the 7-Up ad as well? Yeah, 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 and Billy helped. But, yeah, the two of us basically, they had It's an Up thing, but then we did the whole, it's a given, it's a way it makes you feel, blah, blah. Yeah. That's so fly. It was great. It was fun and hilarious. I'll never forget, actually, I went. I was in a cab once. I went to, like, Detroit for something. And I got in a cab and that was playing on the radio. And I said to the cab driver, I was like, oh, that's me. And he's like, what? I was like, that's me singing. And he's like, no, nah, that's a black girl singing. And I was like, <laughs> because I think it was so low. It was almost like a really bad ripoff of like. Anita Baker? Yeah. Or like, um, oh, God, what was that guy's? It wasn't a bad ripoff. You did a great job. No, but it, it was more like, um, uh, I'll think of it later. There was like a really funny like dude that would do these low, funny vocals. But it was just like. I was like, oh, no, that's actually me. And he's like, okay. He, I don't think he believed me, but it was really funny. And what made you strike into, into Frisbee and entrepreneurship? Like, how'd that happen? So I think I just, I think uh, having been a partner at Crushing, I got a really good sense of the business side of things. And, and, and they were honestly really, I think I was always really, having come from an ad agency, I also had a good sense of the back end and how it worked. So I, I felt like I had a good business sense. I felt like Crushing's model was dying, like it was just getting old and I, I needed to streamline. So I had a couple nickels to rub together and I was like, if I'm not gonna do it now, I'm gonna, I, I will never do it. So I just basically told Joey when my contract was up, like, I'm gonna go. And my whole idea was again, to try to have a more fluid model where we could do work for hire, we could do licensing, we could, you know, bring artists on and develop them and with an eye toward either licensing or releasing records and just be more fluid. So I luckily through a series of accidents, like found this space. My, my whole idea was like, I'm going to live where I work because I can't afford two rents. Like I, I, I haven't, as much as I'm a risk taker, I'm a very moderated risk taker. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, I can afford to live here and work here. So that's what I did. I moved into Frisbee and lived here during the construction and luckily had a campaign for Reebok in the wings that I had orchestrated between like all the guys in Dr. Dre's camp and Dre's engineers and A&R guys and Reebok because Reebok was trying to do a rebrand and they really needed legitimate rappers and hip hop music. And they knew that I had that connection to Dre and all his guys, which is a whole other story. But it was sort of great because it was like I was doing the construction here. Dre's guys were in L.A. doing the music, but I was still getting paid to sort of orchestrate this. Producing. You're producing. I was just producing. Yeah. So so that, that was a really fortunate way that I kind of bridged the, you know, two worlds. And then and that was your I, first that was your first client under Frisbee was Reebok was Reebok. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, damn. It was good. That was fun. That was a really... They're up and I, coming. Yeah, up and coming. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, that was great. And it was a really, again, it was fun because it also gave, I, like, I love being involved with the hip hop world. Like, I just feel like advertising is generally pretty white and it's gotten a lot better. But for me, like, part of what I can bring to the table is a, is a more integrated vision and approach which is hilarious coming from this skinny white girl from new hampshire but i just feel like i i i, I love that and i i appreciate being able to do that and i think with the reebok campaign i was a really good 
you know, conduit for that. And, you know, that's happened a few other times, which is really nice. But that was that that was the start. You kind of remind me of a guy named Scott Schreer. Do you know who Scott Schreer oh, is? I, yeah, not just Jingles. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Scott- I don't know him. I know who he is. Okay, Scott's my guy. Okay, I need to meet. You can connect us. Yes, Scott. Scott, you remind me a lot of Scott. Mm. And because in, a, in our, our interview, we talked about uh, how the industry's changed. Yeah, he's and how been, he's been able to just—he's been ahead of the game. He's like the Madonna. Yes, agreed. You know, like yes. co- constantly reinventing himself in yes. this industry. Yes, which I think is humongous. So, what keeps you being innovative? Like you've been in the industry now for. What, over 20 years? Yeah, totally. And the industry's completely changed. What's kept you innovative? Yeah. Well, I guess part of it is just, uh, you know, wanting to be successful. So, like, you always have to stay ahead of things, right? So you always kind of have to see where the business is going and see where you fit in. And for me, it's like, it's that, and it's also wanting to stay creative. Like, the last thing I want to do is just be, like, continuing to do the same thing over and over again and, like, hope that someone eventually likes it again. Mm. So like I've given up a lot of like, I, I feel like as a writer, you know, there's certain things I can bring to the table, but Frisbee is not about me as a writer, whereas I was crushing my whole role was really about writing. And now it's more about facil- facilitating other people. And so the, the motivation is, is, is partially monetary, but it's also partially just wanting to stay creatively fresh and like following what's going on like that's kind of exciting to me it's like okay let's follow what's happening and figure out a way to fit in with that or or get ahead of that and and keep making money and, and how is the how has the market changed from your days at crusher to your early days in advertising to your days now here at frisbee <laughs> uh it's changed a lot i mean i think that the the the, the main difference between crushing days and now is that there's a lot more non-union work that happens so like what what does that mean i'm sorry no it's fine Uh, yeah so so basically when i worked at crushing you know when you wrote jingles or even you know something without vocals you're like any kind of underscore everything was done through the music union through the afm or the singers union which is you know tied in with sag the screen actors guild Mm -hmm. so you get royalties every single time the commercial's on. So like the fees up front that came from the ad agencies were kind of like, oh, that's nice. I got a little bit of money, pay my rent this month. But the big money really came from all the back end, from the performance fees from these unions. And now because of light, when you, it's a little complicated, but basically with the advent of licensing, when you license a song, there's a huge gray area about whether or not you need to pay union royalties anymore so a lot of people don't pay back end anymore like i used to be able to pretty much exist on sag and afm and now that's like eh. what's afm uh the american federation of musicians so so like a lot of a lot of agencies now are not um associated with those they're not signatories to those unions so they don't pay the union anymore Okay. A lot of stuff is non-union or, you know, under the table, so to speak. So it's all about the upfront fees. So that that's the big difference is like I'm looking more at the big deals. I need to make the deals up front and that's all I'm getting. Whereas before it was like, if you buy this, I'm set. I know that through the back end royalty fees, I'll be set over okay. six months. So it's just like a different negotiation. What about yeah. like the discovery of of music for advertising like yeah how does it go about do you go about now making music you producing it or how do you discover new talent or discover songs and yeah new talent you know it's funny i i I, (laughs) the word lazy comes to mind which is so bad i'm not lazy about it i think i i really i tend to like lock into certain people like i when I, i i feel like i'm really good at like finding talent and i'm really specific about it it's all about vibe and sound like but so sometimes it's through meeting people in person and a lot of it is just through my relationships like I have really good relationships with a lot of musicians and producers and I pursue I I I pursue them to the fullest extent in the most honest and sincere way so I think that's the main thing is that I just really have a great reputation for being 
fair and honest so that when I meet someone really talented, a lot of time I meet a few more really talented people. And I, I'm, I'm honestly not like on SoundCloud every day, just trying to cherry pick people because, you know, if someone has like two great tracks, like that's not really enough for me. Like it's more about like, do you show up on time? Do you, you know, can you write by assignment? Can you, there's a lot of rigor that goes through that. So, so for me, it's a lot more about just an exponential you know, family tree, so okay. to speak, if that uh, makes sense. No, totally. Well, yeah. What makes a good jingle writer? Yeah. Well, um, I think I, I have a take. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to hear your take. And that's okay. Take. I mean, my, you know, personally, just cause I, I guess I'm a good jingle writer. Like I, I feel like personally for me, like I think a great sense of melody is like a number one, like you need, Melody is a number one, like that's it. And then lyrics, really a, a craft. If you have your craft of lyric writing down to a super specific level, like I always equate it to like writing a haiku. It's like you've basically got like a three line verse, a one line bridge, and maybe a two line chorus. Like, can you tell a whole story in that much like it's a super amount of focus and then I think beyond that you know if you don't have the production skills do you have a partner that's a good producer because it, it always comes with you know now it's not enough to just like have the melody and the lyrics and like the tune like you need the good producer so you if you're not in a company where you can just like grab the right person like you know know how to you know partner with the right producers and engineers to, to, to make your shit sound <laughs> the way it needs to sound. Cause my, my, what I was going to say was you have great sense of sensory. Yeah. Oh, like okay. sensory words, like certain words, like kind of trigger. Right. Um, Drake's really good at this. Mm. Drake's really good at telling people what they want to hear. Right. Yeah, yeah. In a particular moment. Yeah. And there's certain words that he uses that, yeah. to bring that emotion out. Right. That's interesting. Um, or even in like um, enjoy a Pepsi. Yeah. Like picking out the things about the small things about Pepsi. Right. Yeah. Totally. That makes Pepsi great without yeah. saying Pepsi. Right. Exactly. So what's everything else about Pepsi that's awesome? Yeah. Without saying the product's name. Yeah. Exactly. It's so funny you say that because I remember when we first started writing, like Clifford and I were both like really inexperienced at writing jingles. We were just pretty good at writing pop songs. Like we would typically like write something and then be done, and we'd present it, and they'd be like you forgot to say the product. <laughs> yeah. And we'd be like, all right, well, yeah, we'll just throw it in the background because like you say, you just kind of take the universal, like the specific yet universal qualities and you put them in there. And I, and I think in, in that sense that I'm, and maybe what would make a good jingle writer too, is just like being comfortable with embracing like the universality of an, of an experience. Whereas now I think that that's less, I think things are way more targeted and it's like, Whereas that, it's like, oh, yeah, experience the joy of this and the joy of that. Like, everybody loves that, right? Like, I'm comfortable with that. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I think it just, uh, I don't know. I think, like, someone like Apple. Yeah. Where they never talk about anything about the computer. N never. It's about this overlying yeah. theme or yeah. they want you to pull, they pull the emotion out of the product. Exactly. They don't really talk about the product. Right. Um. That's one thing I noticed about when I went through like the lyrics of um, yeah. like some of your past work. Yeah, yeah. Where just the element of it's not about the specific. It is about the product, but you're, you're going to feel joyful regardless. No, exactly. No, it's so funny because I think that he, I think Clifford and I really hit this interesting transition in the jingle world where it was like before he and I were writing, and I'm not saying we transformed it, but I think it was just like a natural timeline i think before i was really into it, it it was really literally like pepsi for those who think young like it was like very prescribed mm -hmm. and i i guess the licensing thing and artists maybe getting in with maybe that was sort of influencing like that clifford and i got into it because we literally just would like write pretty much just write a song with a general emotion attached to it with the brand in mind I think we thought very differently than the guys that have been doing it for like 
20 years before us. Like they were way more. So I think we sort of hit a sweet spot that was like, it's a jingle, but it sounds a lot like a song. Mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think after that, pretty not long after that, it just became like, oh, let's just license a song. Like we don't even need to do this in between thing that's like a branded song. Like let's just license a Beyonce song or whatever. Yeah. And what, what advice do you have for, for artists? Because you've been able to, you know, really find the sweet spot balance. Like one thing why I started this podcast yeah. is showing people that you can be creative. Yeah. But you don't have to be number one on Billboard right. to be creative. Yeah. There's a space for you. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be LeBron James, but you could be a really good general manager or you could be the owner of a team. Right. Or you could be the 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 doctor. Right. You know, for the yeah, team. Yeah. Um and you've really found the sweet spot in, yeah. in your life of I'm creative, but I'm also like a professional. I'm also like Yeah. You yeah, know. wearing a lot of hats. And you're also making songs that are just as recognizable as some of the rappers that we love or like singers that we love. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. What, what advice do you have for for creatives in, yeah. in the creative space? Interesting. I Yeah, I feel like you just listening to your inner voice and, and really being honest with yourself about what what you can what you're good at and maybe what you what you could get better at and and like just lean to your strengths and lean hard into those but also like keep learning about the business around you but don't let but don't let the I would say don't let the business side of it lead you I think let your heart lead you because when your heart leads you that's where you're going to be really successful but like truly your heart like be honest with yourself do you just love this like singing in the shower or are you getting some do you feel some resonance around you from people that 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 you that you have something going on like i i think you really have to follow your heart in a really honest way and you know take your lumps to a degree but i i think don't don't sell out don't 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 chase your tail like trying to get the business deal first. Like I think if you want to be creative, you, you, you should really stick with what you, you know deep down you're good at and have, have the potential to be good at, which is, is, a, is a, it's a tricky conversation to have with yourself, right? Hmm. Well, Mary, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate you t- like telling your story. You're a true thank inspiration. You. Thank you. It's great to, great to hang out with you. Yeah, you're the greatest. Awesome. Thank you. You too. Later, Mary. All right. Mary, Mary. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you so much to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. This episode has been mixed by Mark Bird of NBM Studios, located in Astoria, Queens, NYC's number one recording studio for music, podcasting, and other audio recordings. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at NBM Studios NYC. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.